Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the merciful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. My granddaughter has a favorite word that she utters over and over and over again for which the word because is the only answer. She says, why? Why? That's something that we ask as a kid because we don't understand the world in which we live. But it is something that we ask of God as we grow up and we start recognizing and seeing the very complexity of life and how God wants us to deal with him. This story in this text of the prodigal son brings up all kinds of whys for us today. Why would a son feel that he could ask for the inheritance of his father before his father even died? Why would a father give his son his full inheritance when he knows full well that he was going to take that and destroy his life? Why would it take such incredible and drastic suffering for that son to finally overcome the delusions that he had faced in his life? Why is it that mercy became the most important thing? Why did mercy triumph over justice in this story? Why is it that the rights of sonship never disappeared, even though he went off and messed his life up? Why is it that faithfulness doesn't seem to get reward, and why is it that the best always seems to be given to the worst of people? And why do we say that the supreme goal of all God's dealing and all our lives have to do with the saving of life itself? So we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask why it is that a son could ask for an inheritance before it's time from his father. The text begins very simply. A young man, one of two sons, says to his father, give me my portion of the inheritance. And this son, of course, the older son, would always receive the inheritance of the land. And so this was probably a cash and monetary buyout from the inheritance. And he wanted to have it right away. For what purpose? Well, he wanted to be able to have feasting. He wanted to be able to have joy. He wanted to be able to maybe even not have to work anymore. He wanted to be able to enjoy his life. Ordinarily, this would be something that he would have to wait for, for his father to pass away, for his father to give it to him as an inheritance. And we wonder why his father would reach out and grab a little bit of that and give it to him. But we are much like that ourselves, aren't we? We too have an inheritance. We are children of God. And as children of God, we have a heavenly inheritance waiting for us that is going to be an incredible experience. It is going to be feasting. It is going to be joy. It is going to be happiness. It is going to be 
wonderful praise and unity and love between ourselves, it is going to be a time that will never end and it will be a time when we cease from our labors and now our Lord and our Savior serves us into all eternity. And there are times that we too want to be able to reach into time and ask for our inheritance early. We'd like for having to have some of that right here and now, Lord. We want to be able to have peace. We want to be able to have prosperity. We want to be able to have friends. We want to be able to enjoy life. And we wonder why it is that God withholds that and why it is that God might even give it to some people sometimes. We begin to wonder why, Lord, why does he do this? Well, we try to understand in equal measure why it is that a father would turn around and give all these things to his son when he knew that his son was going to use them to destroy his life. Why is that the case? The text tells us that he received his inheritance, probably didn't really let his parents know too much about what it is that he was doing. He receives his inheritance and quickly packs up all the things that he has and he goes off to a faraway country, probably near the coast, where there he uses his living in wild living, squandering all the wealth that has been given unto him. Why, we ask. Does God allow that kind of thing to happen? Why would his father, why didn't his father just yell at him and tell him that he couldn't go and force him to stay, require him to carry out his daily tasks and responsibilities? Sometimes sin and evil have to be set free before they can be seen for what it is that they really truly are to the naive soul that desires to feed them so badly. This is true of us too. The law of God is something that sets forth for us where happiness is to be found in that fourth commandment, that fifth commandment, that sixth commandment, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth. We see there how God gives us constrictions, but constrictions that are intended for our good. But we too have a sinful nature, and if our heart is set on sin and evil, God even there allows us to resist his will in fact, we find out that the more that he imposes his law upon the heart that is bent on sin, that the more that the heart hates God. So God allows us, he gives room for our sinful natures that we might make mistakes and that we ultimately might be led astray by our own evil thoughts so that sin and evil might be able to reveal its true stripes in the end. We ask why. Why does it take such drastic suffering before men will awake before their delusions and from their delusions? He goes away to this far away country and squanders all of his living and then a famine arises making things even worse. The only thing that he can do, probably his friends have forgotten him by now, the only thing he can do is hire himself out to a stranger from that land and he's given the job to feed pigs and he wishes that he could even eat the food that was being given to the pigs and they would not even give that to him. And so there he is, destitute, and finally he comes to a realization that he can no longer feed his flesh and he comes to his senses, the text says. 
The son was living. The reason why it takes drastic suffering is that the son was living by the authority of his flesh. You see, the flesh, when it is our authority, we judge right and wrong by pain and suffering. We call this hedonism. Pain means something is bad. Pleasure means something is good. And as long as the hedonistic spirit, that pain and pleasure, the flesh, is our authority in life, we won't listen to any other authority. We cannot be easily convinced. So as long as the money is there, as long as the friends are there, as long as suffering and sorrow are at a distance, then all is well. But we discover that when suffering and sorrow shows up, that in the end the flesh comes to realize that it is not the authority on life. And it takes great suffering sometimes for the hedonist to come to grips with reality. We see this kind of thing happening with drugs, don't we? That drugs actually have that vicious circle where by taking those drugs and by giving the pleasures of the flesh, the drug itself comes to change the brain and the brain can no longer think rationally, which therefore makes the drugs look even better. That's the way it works with the flesh. When it becomes the authority and sometimes only pain and suffering are the things that ultimately bring us back to reality. This can be true with us too. We have our flesh that clings to us, pleasure, contentment, friendships, and so on. These are the things that make church, God's house, look rather dull. Here in God's house, things look rather boring when the world, however, fails us because they are the gods of men. We fortunately, and by the grace of God, come to our senses and we come to realize that true happiness is to be found in our Father's house. We wonder why, why mercy is so much greater than justice. There he is feeding the pigs. He comes to his senses and he says to himself, there are servants in my father's house that have food to spare and here I am starving. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant, a hired hand in your household. While he's a great distance off, we of course know what happened. That prodigal son knew that he had a just and a righteous father. He had probably all his life lived underneath the discipline, the guidance, the direction, the wisdom of his father. And sometimes that wisdom looks very, very harsh, and sometimes that wisdom is not something that you want to really have in your life. But every once in a while, he undoubtedly saw through to something in his father, something called mercy, where people received something that they didn't deserve, where his compassion was moved in such a way that he could overlook or pardon or forgive. And so when he remembers his father's mercy, a mercy that would be greater than having to face his father's justice, then he is ready to go home. We're like that too. We know 
who God is, don't we, and what God's commandments are, those Ten Commandments that constrain and constrict us and which tell us even at the end of the commandments what? I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. God threatens to punish all those who transgress his commandments, Luther wrote. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not act contrary to them. So we see God as this wrathful God who will punish us for our wrongdoing. But we also see in our Lord and Savior a God of mercy and grace towards sinners. A sinful woman comes in and kneels behind him, washing his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. And Jesus turns and pardons and forgives this woman, even though she doesn't deserve it. We see his compassion upon people as he feeds starving multitudes. We see his compassion as he raises young boys from the dead. We see his compassion as he feeds the hungry, as he cares for and heals those who are sick. And it makes us come to realize that we too have a God who is merciful and his mercy will always supersede and become greater than even his justice. We wonder how it is that the rights of sonship never go away. That father is looking probably every single day, hoping that his son would return, and he sees him off in a distance, and he runs to his son, and his son falls down on his knees and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am not worthy to be called your son. And before the words can even come out of his mouth, make me a servant in your household. His father yells and calls for his servants, bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand, go and kill that fattened calf. This son of mine was dead, he's alive. He was lost and he has been found. But he says, this son, not this servant, this son. This is something that we have to wrestle with, don't we? Is there ever a time when that boy was not his son? His conduct and his behavior said so. His conduct and his behavior was something that rejected the very gift that had been given to him. But we have to remember that just as he was still a son who could claim the right of being able to go back to his father's household, that when we were baptized into Christ, that God made us his children, his sons, and that there is never a time that we cannot go back to him for his grace and for his forgiveness and for his mercy. Paul calls these the rights of sonship. Never, ever, ever does God pull away his gift and there will be times and there are times when we are not worthy of that sonship but there's never a time in which God will ever take it away from us. So we ask the question why does it seem as though the best is given to the worst? Why is it that faithfulness does not seem to be rewarded at all? Ah, oh, they call together the servants to make a great feast and there's music and there's dancing and in comes the other son from the outer fields. 
He says, what's happening? And one of the servants says, well, your, your brother's come home and your father has killed for him the fattened calf. And he stands outside indignant that his father would do this. And out comes his father and the young older son says to his father, you know, all these years I have served you, I have slaved for you, yet not once did you give me even so much as you, a goat with which I might make merry with my friends. But this brother of mine who has squandered your wealth and who has squandered it with prostitutes, he comes home and for him you kill the fattened calf. The father says to him, my son, you I always have with me. But this brother of yours was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he has been found. Can you imagine yourself in a similar situation? You have a brother and he goes off to college and he is spending all this money that your parents have saved up and he goes down there and he's drinking and he's partying and he's getting bad grades and he's flunking out of school and he never comes home and he does everything contrary to what it is that your family has ever stood for and you stay home and you work at the family business and you do everything your parents tell you to do and you're there for them whenever they need you and then he comes home and they're all excited and they have a great big feast because he's come home and they've never even so much as even had a feast in your honor for all the years that you served him. Do you think maybe you might be a little upset too? Well, let us try to understand what love really is. Love is something that is not a two-way street, it's a one-way street. Love is something that you give and which is given unconditionally. Love is one directional. And therefore, this one who received this love, this claim never goes away. But when you give that love and it is not given back, it hurts. When you offer that love so freely, so one-directionally, and it is not returned back to you, but even sometimes scorned, the gap between what has happened and your love becomes so great that it tears the heart apart. And when it is returned and restored, the joy is absolutely incredible. It doesn't seem to quite be there for the one that receives love and gives love every day. It doesn't receive the same kind of response as the one who had lost it and now gets it back again. But we can begin to understand why it is that there would be such rejoicing at the return of the one who had rejected it and now rediscovered and found it once again. We ask ourselves, why is the saving of life the supreme goal of all life? The father says to this son, my son, you I have always had with me, but this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he has been found. Just like God, we rejoice in making things, don't we? We like to create things. We build houses and we furnish them and we like to decorate. And we build businesses and we develop our careers in life. 
but the one thing that has been given unto us that we cannot make ourselves is a human life. That is a gift from God, and it is a treasure beyond all treasures. When the tornado comes ripping through the Indiana village and it destroys absolutely everything, we all rejoice when there is no loss of life, right? Those things can be repaired, those things can be rebuilt, but a human life can't. So our Father in heaven considers it the greatest treasure of his life, this son of his. No matter how much was destroyed in him and around him, his son was alive. Can we understand that this is the one goal that God has for us in our life? To save our lives? He takes us and will oftentimes take us through great trials and tribulations. And through those tribulations, what is his one goal? That our lives are saved. His goal is that we understand Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness and that we are able to return back to him once again to the mercy of God our Father. Remember, there are many and going to be many whys when it comes to our relationship with God. We're always going to have a hard time understanding his mind and his heart. But the one thing that we know for absolutely sure is that his one great goal for which he involves us and guides us and cares for us and tends for us, his one great goal is the salvation of our life. And no matter what may happen, no matter what may come, he works in all things, Paul says, for our good and for our salvation. So, if that is his one goal, it is also our desire that all our prodigal sons be brought back to the church. And it is our desire that we would all enter into that great banquet hall in the life that is to come. And there that we celebrate the feast of salvation with the whole church for all eternity. That's why today we are going to celebrate the Feast of Salvation here. In his holy name, amen. May this peace of God that surpasses all human understanding guard and keep your minds, your thoughts, and your hearts in faith in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. <laughs>